Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 20, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. Of course, I'm author of the book released last year called Spiritual Grit, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast got its launching pad, and the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which, by the way, is, if I haven't mentioned this to you before, about 50,000 times, The Jesus-Centered Bible is a fantastic gift for a graduate, not just for now graduating from high school or college, but as they're heading off either at the end of the summer to college or into the work world or something, it, what a great companion gift to give to them, to give them a copy of the Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, it can really affect the whole trajectory they have as they head into a new sort of season of independence. So uh, we'll put a link to the Jesus-Centered Bible on our podcast page, which I'll talk more about later. Today, in addition to me, we have the Beckinator in the house. Actually, she's still in her house in Oregon, so she's not really <laughs> she's not really in the house. But you get what I mean. So where she's been all day recording podcasts. <laughs> she's the podcastinator now, but that's actually too many syllables to say. So we're just going to keep with the Beckinator. That has a ring to it. So today is our sixth and last episode in the series that we've been calling Fully Human. And if, if this is the first one that you've heard in the series, it's essentially what we're doing is we're exploring the fully human part of that description of Jesus, which is fully God, fully human. We are pretty comfortable thinking about Jesus and even describing him in terms of being fully God. Uh, we get that, the whole, you know, turning loaves and fishes into a meal for 10,000 and healing dead people and things like that really fit with our narrative of that he's fully God, and of course he is. But we don't pay uh, often close attention to how Jesus reclaimed and modeled what it is to be fully human. So that's what we're focusing on. And we've used this kind of filter of the way that Jesus talked about what love is really all about. He said love is really all about uh, engaging all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. So we've been using that as kind of a filter to look at what it means to be fully human. And so today, we're going to dig into one of the least explored aspects of Jesus' behavior. In fact, I don't remember a time in my entire long trajectory as a follower of Jesus ever hearing in church a whole, let's say, sermon series about the anger of Jesus. <laughs> so we're going to explore this rather important aspect of his behavior and his personality that it's just a fact on the face of it that Jesus often got angry. And that is a tension for us who, especially those of us who've grown up in the church, because anger is one of those things that we compartmentalize out of our Christian life. So if we pay ridiculous attention to how and why Jesus expressed anger, I think we'll get an important portal into his heart. And also we'll get an important sort of model for how we're to relate with this very sort of basic human emotion. So it is a fundamental emotion, but we generally believe that good Christians really shouldn't be angry. 
uh, except we pretty much get angry about something every single day. I was reading this um, article in the Atlantic in preparation for this, and it was fascinating to, this was an article about a researcher named James Averill, who's a psychology professor at the University of Massachusetts, and he did a groundbreaking study on anger. And he put together a study of a small town. So he actually surveyed the entire town to try to get a kind of a snapshot of people's relationship with anger. And he did this because he, he wanted to kind of pick out this representative sort of place and get a cross section of what their, you know, sort of relationship with anger was. And here's what he found. He found out that most people get angry either several times a day or several times a week. The exact quote he put here is, most people report being mildly to moderately angry anywhere from several times a day to several times a week. So, and he was basically saying most of the angry episodes were sort of short, confined to these restrained conversations. They were rarely kind of blowout fights. But the unusual, surprising thing that he found in his research is that the expression of anger was actually productive in a good way. It actually produced good things. He said the ratio of beneficial to harmful consequences of anger was about three to one. So meaning that out of every four times there was an angry episode, three of them were actually beneficial. They were positive. They produced something good. So that kind of flies in the face in some ways of what we as followers of Jesus would prefer to think of ourselves as. We don't want to think of ourselves as angry people. In fact, we're supposed to be nice people. Christians are, you know, kind of fundamentally supposed to be the nicest people on the planet. So how do we square that with our own behavior, that not our facade, but our actual behavior? And how do we square that with Jesus himself, who we have to say spoke against anger, but actually got angry himself? So there's some tension there. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, and we'll revisit the whole context of what he's saying here in just a second. But in Matthew 5, during the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that when we get angry with someone, we are, quote, subject to the same judgment we give murderers. This is that string of, string of statements Jesus made where he took normal everyday things and said, actually, when you do that, like when you look at a woman in lust, you're actually committing adultery with her. And when you get angry and curse somebody, you're actually committing murder. <laughs> so it's this whole string of things where he just ups the ante on us for a particular reason. So what's interesting is that surrounding the Sermon on the Mount, he actually has some angry outbursts himself with people. So it's this kind of tension we live with that he's saying anger is a really important thing to pay attention to. It's not a small thing. And it's also part of my life, Jesus is saying. I am comfortable getting angry. And he probably, if the standard for most Americans is getting moderately angry, either several times a day to several times a week, Jesus is above the curve. And we'll, we'll see more of that in just a minute. So Becky, I thought it would be interesting for us to start out by talking a little bit about our own wrestling matches with anger in our life. I wonder if you could think of either current or close to the past kind of struggles you've had around anger, either your own or other people, and how you process that. What kind of narrative did you tell yourself about those angry episodes? What narrative are you telling yourself about the anger that you have? Can you think of anything that pops into your head that 
you wouldn't be afraid to share <laughs> on the podcast? Well, I mean, I grew up in a home that was kind of like an Italian home, even though none of us were Italian, really. It was like yelling and screaming all the time. There was... Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like what we want. <laughs> yeah, it was... Everyone yelled and screamed. And that was just kind of the way that any kind of conflict was dealt with was you yelled it out until it was done and then you moved on or you yelled it out till one person over yelled at you and then you gave up and that's how it was moved on, probably more likely the later. Um, and so <laughs> that was normal to me. Like that's what normal output of anger looked like is that if you needed to work through an issue, whoever was loudest won. <laughs> Whoever didn't run out of energy and was loudest won, and that was usually my mother. <laughs> uh, you know what? I have to say this. In that Atlantic article I just mentioned, um, he talks about how the sort of pragmatic usefulness of anger and what you just said, whoever was loudest won, is actually true in general in our culture, hmm. that the person who's loudest and angriest often leverages the situation. Yeah. So there was a lot of leverage. My mother never ran out of energy and she usually won <laughs> So <laughs> uh, on everything. And so um, when I went out into the world and started developing my own relationships, I quickly learned that that was the quickest way to not make friends or keep friends or definitely yelling, a, yelling and screaming in an italian -y sort of way. Definitely getting a boyfriend to break up with you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, luckily for me, I decided to go into counseling in my 20s, like when I was 21 years old. And so I learned a lot of new coping mechanisms. But it's interesting whenever I'm around people now who get really angry and loud, I actually like have a really hard time. I shut down. Going to PTSD. Um, yeah. And also because I'm afraid of being like that again. So I kind of overly like back off from any kind of yelling or angry situation. It's too much for me to think about going into that same person again. Yeah, I think it's actually helpful practical advice right off the bat that if you are looking to get rid of your boyfriend, yeah. indiscriminate anger, screaming and yelling screaming will do that yelling. for you. That's like yeah. the way to go. Yeah. If you were thinking of breaking up with him, but you didn't want to take responsibility for the breakup, that could be a useful tip for you today. That's <laughs> true. You know, my wife, I've told you the podcast people before, my wife is uh, exactly half Italian and half Irish. And I always jokingly she really appreciates this by the way not um, when i say that it's a combination of the two most volatile ethnic strains in the, in the world those two but the first time that i went to a family gathering like with her extended family oh my gosh it was like a low-level earthquake the entire time and i might have said this before on the podcast a long time ago but i we were actually at a wedding in another state and that's where all of the family members had kind of gathered so i was meeting all these cousins and aunts and uncles for the first time and on the second morning of that trip there was a big golf outing planned for all the guys and i had said i wasn't going to go but somebody dropped out and so they begged me to go so i kind of threw on some clothes and ran out there and I wasn't planning to do this, but I, I'm like, all right, I'll go play golf with these guys. And I run out the front door of the hotel and one of her Italian cousins is sitting there in the car waiting for me to get in. And the windows rolled down. He's got his arm out the window and he just looks at me. He has never spoken a word to me in my life before. I'm just meeting this guy for the first time. And he looks at me with this stare and says, get the hell in the van. 
<laughs> uh, so there was a lot of over-the-topness in that family as well. And it really creates a tense environment, as you've just described. So I was thinking about the other day, uh, I had to take my parents to a, to a couple of doctor's appointments, and I'm sitting in kind of thick traffic, late afternoon traffic in Denver metro area. And I just noticed how many angry people were around me. I mean, if you didn't start off the line as soon as the light turned green, you got a honk and angry glares. And it's amazing. I just think about in the last month, the number of times I have felt the anger of people when I'm on the road. People just have a quick trigger right now. And it's, it's upsetting, I have to say. And it's not the right kind of anger. You know, we have a sense that there's time when anger is necessary and there's a time when it's really destructive and unhealthy and it's really a diminishment of our humanness, you could say, in a way. In fact, uh, I was reading about a guy who's a technology ethicist. Yeah, go to college for that. But he used to be Google's tech design ethicist. So he had this role at Google where he was supposed to be helping set the ethics around our engagement with technology. And he since left Google and started a nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology. And I heard a podcast interview of him, which was fascinating to me. He was talking about how our technology overload mm-hmm. is, is sort of like climate change. It's a massive change in our environment that is affecting us in lots of ways if we just pay attention. So in some of those ways, he said, are addiction, information overload, polarization, and radicalization. And it was that last one that really caught my ear that I really feel like we're in a radicalized time where when people are angry, they're not just a little bit angry, they're really angry and they're angry for a long time. So this guy, Tristan Harris, has coined a term for this problem of this technology overload comparison to climate change problem. He calls it human downgrading. I thought it was a fascinating way to, to describe what's happened to us that our humanness is being downgraded by the radicalization of our attachments to technology right now. And so I think I see this expressed all around me and just the casual behavior of people all the time. And in our house, my wife and I have had kind of an ongoing debate about the role of anger in our parenting. Because sometimes kids do things that are really you know, insensitive and jerk-like and sometimes even mean and unthinking and not thoughtful. And, and, you know, obviously we know we're called to be patient and offer grace, but there are times when I get angry with my kids. And sometimes because Bev especially grew up in a household like yours, Becky, where there was a lot of overt anger. I think when I get angry, it really touches on stuff for her because I typically don't. So if I get angry, it kind of touches on things for her. And then she immediately thinks that what I have done is wrong. And she's probably, you know, she's right sometimes when I have expressed anger in a childish or unhealthy way, she's right. But I've often, you know, sort of with her defended my anger towards our kids because I've said, I think sometimes they need to feel the edge or the weight of what they've done. And my anger helps that weight to be expressed So we've had this kind of ongoing debate about is anger healthy? And I definitely agree with my wife. Anger is unhealthy and destructive in many cases when really we have no good excuse for it. We can't really defend the way in which we were angry. But there are other times that I think when anger expresses a leverage that's needed in the situation. And I think 
that second thing that I just said now is backed up by Jesus' behavior. We see him expressing anger as an appropriate way to leverage in the situation. So we're going to talk more about that in a second. But I thought, Becky, it'd be interesting for us to interact with two things. I found a, a little list of the myths of anger and also the questions we wrestle with with anger. So I thought we'd just blaze through some of these myths and see if you have any reaction to any of these myths. Like, do you relate to these things? Do you see this in the people around you? Do you see this in yourself? So the first myth is that expressing anger is mean and harmful to others as a general rule. Do you find that in yourself, Becky, that when you think about when you've gotten angry, generally speaking, you attach meaning to that that says, well, that's just basically mean and harmful to others. I think that it, it, it depends on the situation. I've definitely used anger, like you said, as a way to articulate, you've gone, you've gone beyond pushing me here and I have to push back now. And more often I actually have to do that for myself in life than not with my family. But I also think that when anger is mean, that word mean, when anger is mean, it usually includes name calling. Oh, yeah. Or putting that person down. And that's and when, when it's mean and harmful. And when anger is mean, it's always about the person's identity, not about the issue. I mean, I think that's what makes it mean is that you're attacking the person's core identity somehow. And we do that often out of frustration and this desire to gain more power and leverage in whatever it is that's making us upset. It's very time. different to say I'm extremely disappointed and angry with you because you lied the other day. And it's then to say, I can't believe you. You're such a liar. Right. That's the difference between an I message and a you message, which we learn in basic counseling 101, right? So the second myth is we're, we are unacceptable when we're angry and we deserve rejection. And I, I know think that, this is unhealthy. Yeah, it totally is. And I know that I think sometimes when I, I so I just mentioned, sometimes I've been angry at my kids as a parent. And when I have done that in a childish way, I really do feel shame. You know, I feel like, well, what kind of person am I that would allow myself to get angry in an inappropriate way with my kids? There must be something wrong with me. It's tempting to go to that place of shame when you've expressed anger and you know, and you're not comfortable with the way you expressed it. Yeah. So the third myth is um, we are unacceptable when we're angry and know that it will cause rejection. So meaning that if we express anger, we know that someone's going to reject us, kind of like how to get rid of your boyfriend. Um, so, so if you don't really want to get rid of that person, you know, oh, I better not get angry. I better manage my anger. So let me run through the other myths here, and maybe you can just pick out the one that you think is the most important one to make a comment about here. So here are some other myths. We have no right to become angry at others. Anger is weakness. The only way anger is expressed is through loud yelling and violence. Anyone who's angry is a bad person. If you love me, you would never get angry at me. Husbands and wives should never go to bed angry. Oh, I've heard that like a billion times from Christian marriage people. A good parent never gets angry at their child. Happily married people never get angry. And explosive anger is a sign of strength. Any of those particularly stick out to you is like, I got to say something about that. So all over the place, but I definitely think number six, like the only way anger is expressed is through loud yelling and violence. I don't think that's true. I think anger can also be expressed through silence, actually. 
I think that sometimes like stonewalling someone with your silence is your passive aggressive way of expressing anger, but not having to take responsibility for it. (laughs) And actually, I think that sometimes that kind of anger is actually more dangerous because there's nothing to deal with. It's just kind of out there. So I think there's lots of ways that anger is expressed and I don't think it always has to be through loud yelling and violence. For, for sure. And when we, in one of them on number five is anger is weakness. And that kind of implies that people who are strong always control their anger. And I think that that statement is really about control and about sub, even maybe suppression of real emotion. And that's one of the things about Buddhism, by the way, that I think is its fundamental flaw, that the basis of Buddhism is that the root of all sin is desire. So the path then is to suppress all desire. That's nirvana. When you have buried all of your desire and suppressed it, then you'll experience true peace. And Jesus does not teach or model that the path to true peace is by the suppression of your desires. In fact, he created us with desire. There's a fantastic book, by the way, if you've never read John Eldridge's book, The Journey of Desire, it's one of my top 10 books of all time. It reclaims the place of desire in the life of the follower of Jesus and kind of works against some of this sort of emotional suppression that we sometimes hear in the church. But the other one that stuck out to me is uh, happily married people never get angry. And one of the things we've had to slowly progress with our kids is they go to other people's homes. They don't hear parents getting angry with each other. So the lesson they've taken from that is all the normal parents never get angry with each other. Why, when I come home, do I hear my mom and dad sometimes get angry with each other? They must have a big problem. That's how that's gotten processed as our kids were, especially when they were younger. So we've had to slow down and talk through this with them and say, you know what? Normal, healthy people get angry with each other. And those other parents that you don't see get angry, that's because they have a guest in their home. (laughs) Adults can usually summon up the self-discipline to not get angry at each other when they have other people not in their family in their home. That's why you're never hearing them get angry. But if you ask your friends, do your parents ever get angry? They'll tell you the truth. So it's not that happily married people never get angry. I think the opposite is true. People that are very unhappily married suppress their emotions and they never get angry with each other. They just control them. So there's a lot of myth in those myths. The other thing that I came across was just some some important questions to wrestle with around this whole issue of our anger. Um, How important is it for me to express my anger? Is it a minor thing in the situation? Is it best to just let go of it? Or is it important for me to express my anger? I think that is a good question to answer. Is it a significant and important thing for me to make sure this person understands that I'm angry right now, rather than just letting it go or suppressing it? Another one is, if I express my anger, how will the other person respond? Will they hurt back or will they retaliate or they, will this create damage? I think it's an important question. This one makes me a little bit more uncomfortable because it, it almost sounds like It could lead to sort of people-pleasing, so I don't want to ever express my anger because I don't want to make people unhappy. You're nodding your head right now, Becky. Why are you nodding your head? Oh, just because I do think that's dangerous. Like, if if your decision-making is that I can't be angry if someone else is disappointed in my expression of my anger or 
I mean, hurt is a little bit like if expressing your anger hurts them, then maybe you need to find a way to express your anger that doesn't hurt someone, but especially to not do it because someone might retaliate. That's their issue, right? The retaliation isn't in your control. It's in their control and it's actually what they need to take responsibility for. And for you to put that back on and say, you know, I know I was angry. I felt like I had a good reason to be angry, but your response to my anger, that's actually your responsibility. Yeah, that's good. These last two questions are really about the considering how we want to express whatever it is we're upset about. One is what's the best way to express my disappointment? If you know and accept that you need to talk about this, is anger the best way to express it, or is there some other way? That's a good question, I think. And can I express anger in ways that are firm, assertive, and respectful? Which implies that you are not, uh, that the anger is not in control of you. You are in control of your response. So you're angry, but you're consciously, intentionally that way, not at the mercy of an overwhelming emotion inside of you right then. So I think, you know, you can already see some of the tension and dichotomy surrounding this whole thing for us as people. And there's tension and dichotomy surrounding this with Jesus as well. So I'd like to revisit this little portion in the Sermon so on the Mount. before you do that, I just yeah. wanted to add one more question here. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's actually related to your traffic thing. Because I'm a California girl, traffic was like a, just a normal part of life. And just to clarify for those of you who live in smaller towns, traffic is when you're unable to go the speed limit. Um, <laughs> it's not when there's other cars on the road. So like I live in Oregon now and I lived in Colorado and some people confuse this who haven't lived in a high traffic city. Traffic is not when you're going the speed limit or above and there's just other cars there. So just to clarify. <laughs> Packed traffic is when it's thwarting you to from getting to point A to point B in a significant way. So when I had to deal with traffic on a daily basis, I knew that I was going to because of the time I left and where I lived every day I had to sit in traffic. And sometimes that meant my car was parked on the freeway for periods of time. And so I had a little traffic survival kit. I had nail clippers, dental floss, cleaning cloths for my car. I turned it into a highly productive time in my car. And so I think sometimes when we're angry, is it because we didn't really expect that there was going to be something or do we just need to change our mindset and say, there's going to be traffic. I'm going to change my mindset about it. And I'm going to instead create a situation where I see it as a positive thing. But if you're sitting in traffic angry every single day, what are you going to do about it? Being angry doesn't do anything. So sometimes I do think when we're angry about something that's just going to happen, we need to change our perspective about that. Yeah, and, and anger is a, it serves as a vent for something, and maybe there is healthier ways to vent. The truth is, if you're angry all the time, you are slowly killing yourself. That's what uh, the medical community would tell you, that people who are angry a lot have increased blood pressure, which puts much more uh, taxed it taxes our, our bodily organs and all kinds of other things. It's very unhealthy to be always angry. It can really kill you in the end. So let's, uh, let's dive into this where Jesus talked in Matthew 5. Now, this is like his on-ramp into his ministry. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, his first big gathering. He's got a bunch of people gathered ready to hear the, this incredible new rabbi teach, and he just talks for a while. This is highly unusual for Jesus in his teaching ministry. He doesn't often just stand or sit and talk for a while. So he's doing this at the beginning for a very particular reason. He's, he's sort of throwing out one grenade after another into the crowd 
trying to blow up what they think the God-honoring life is supposed to be. He's blowing it all up. So here's what he says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So he's saying, you know, obviously this is the standard. You can't murder. You're going to be judged for that. And then he says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Wow, what would it have been like to have heard that? Like, what do you mean? You know, if I'm angry or curse someone, I can be judged the same way a murderer is judged? That sounds crazy, Jesus. So he's rolling out these grenades at the very, the very beginning. So the question here is, why is Jesus magnifying the seriousness of anger here? Why do you think at this point in his ministry, when he's spilling out a bunch of stuff to this crowd, why would he so magnify how serious anger is here? So, I mean, at this point in his ministry, I think Jesus is trying to make a stand um, and he's trying to stand against the religiosity of the Pharisees. And he's got to kind of draw a line in the sand here. He, he has to make a clear um, understanding at the beginning of his ministry about the direction of where he's going. And he can't be passive about it, actually, at this point. Like, he has to create a deep line of separation and say, this is not going to be acceptable for moving forward. And so I think that the severity of why the Sermon on the Mount is, is that way is because he really needed to upend what he was going to be about in his ministry and that that was not going to be a light little flowery ministry, that it was going to be very starkly different than what they had experienced from their own teachings and learnings. And so I think in this example, it's about needing to be extremely severe so as to create a direct line in the sand. You're on this side and you're on that side. So I love this connection you're making. And, and in a way, the thing that Jesus is starting to poke at and will get even more so overtly poking at throughout his ministry is the, this whole idea that the Pharisees held to and taught, which is sin management, that you follow a bunch of checkboxes and self-discipline to make yourself righteous by managing your sin. And so the best way to blow people out of that mindset, because it's really, it's a deceptive mindset. It's telling people, this is why Jesus said, you Pharisees tie up burdens on people's backs, and you're not even able to lift a finger to help them with those things. You can't lift the same thing yourself. When he's talking about it, he's really saying, you're saying to manage your sin the way, like in this case, manage your anger and you're good. And he's basically trying to say, but even one time that you get angry with someone like this, it's like murder. You need a lot more than just sin management to take care of your sin problem. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to say. We can stay righteous by managing our righteousness. And Jesus here is saying, you've got to be kidding me. That's a ridiculous goal and no one's ever done it. And you need more help than that. It's interesting that you point this out, too, because just before he talks about this teaching about anger, he's telling people this in verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into this thing about anger. So he's really saying, you know, their standard for righteousness it has to go way beyond what you see in them. And that must have sounded like to people like, you've got to be kidding. Those people, 
those people are like professional sin managers. And you're saying my righteousness has to be higher than that? How does that, I can't do that. So Jesus is trying to make an extreme point here by magnifying this, I think, that he's trying to say, look, you don't have enough. Whatever it is you're doing, it's not enough. You need more than you, <laughs> I guess is another way of saying it. So let's maybe dive into some expressions of Jesus' anger. I decided to just plop right there from Matthew 5 and start going forward and just stopping whenever I saw Jesus get a little bit angry. And uh, we can't actually go through all of the ones that I found. I only made it through Matthew 17, and I think I have 10 or 12 instances where he got angry on some level, and I could have probably thrown in even more. It happens a lot. So it's interesting to look at each one of these in light of what he's just said about anger. So I think the question I'd like us, Becky, to consider, I'm probably not going to go to every one of these examples because we just won't have enough time, but I'm going to skip around to some. And the question I want us to think about here is, what can we learn about what fully human anger is that Jesus is modeling from each of these samplers? So when we think about what Jesus is modeling, and we're making this fundamental assumption that however he's expressing anger, it is the perfect way to express anger because Jesus is perfect. So he's modeling perfection through a human expression of anger. So if we look through that filter, what can we learn about what it means to be fully human with our anger? So I'm going to flip over to Matthew 9 to start out with. And some of these, you know, encounters where Jesus got angry, they're representative of many others that are like the same situation where he gets angry in kind of the same way. This one's around when he heals a paralyzed man and he does something before he heals the man that really ticks off the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then Jesus has to respond to their anger. So here's the story, Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, and you're expecting him to say right now, be healed, paralyzed man. But no, Jesus says this instead, be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Well, some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Yep, yep, I do. But then it continues, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. So there's some exclamation marks in this little passage. And the first thing he says back to them is, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? So he's clearly upset with them. He's clearly angry with them for being upset with him for forgiving this guy's sin. So the question is, what can we learn about what it is to be fully human by paying attention to how Jesus gets angry here? What pops into your head, Becky? Well, he was angry because they questioned his identity and his authority. Why would anger be an appropriate response to that? Well, if you're a parent, you probably can identify with this. When your children question your authority in the house, you get angry with them. <laughs> we have, you know, we have authority systems that are designed for raising children and protection. And when someone who has authority is being treated in a way that is disrespectful, anger is often a response to that as a way to put them in their place and make sure that they understand whose authority they're under. 
So here's an interesting way to track back through this. So just hang with me here. So the Holy Spirit is really the gift of Jesus's heart. So when we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're not given Jesus in bodily form, obviously. His heart lives in our heart. And so later, uh, Jesus says, hey, I'll forgive any sin, but blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that's like unforgivable. So I think what he's really saying here, to catch this little bridge here, he's saying, if you blaspheme, if you describe or treat my heart as something other than it is, look, if you persist in that, you've got no hope, buddy. If you misrepresent my heart, and if you misconstrue my heart, I can't help you. (laughs) Because when you have made that mistake, you can't be in relationship with me if you think my heart is other than it is, and here the Pharisees are right off the bat misrepresenting his heart. They, instead of celebrating what he says to this man, they get their underwear in a bunch. They, they think, who's this guy think he is? And then just as his exclamation point, Jesus says, and I think I'll just heal this guy now. Watch this. So he's twice trying to say, hey, I know you're angry because it looks like I'm painting myself off as God, but I'm not painting myself off as God. I am God. I'm the Messiah. Get used to me saying that. (laughs) There's another one in Matthew 9, verse 9. It starts in verse 9. Literally, you do not have to go very far. We were just in Matthew 9, 1 through 6. You get to verse 9, and there's another time when he's a little bit peeved. So here it starts. It's when he calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. So here we start in verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. So later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. (laughs) And And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they're righteous. And the pregnant pause there is that he's speaking directly to those guys. I haven't called the people who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I just love that last little line. You think you're righteous, and I haven't really come for you because you guys aren't even open to me. I've come for people who know they're sinners, and I'm surrounded by them right now. So here Jesus gets angry with the Pharisees in a different way. What pops in your head when you think about this encounter? Well, I think that what this is is that nothing makes Jesus more angry than someone who puts themselves in a place of influence and authority over someone else. And then when that person disappoints them for whatever reason, that they not only abandon them, but they actually, they shame them in a way that alters their identity. And by saying the things that he said and calling them scum, they were in authority. They were in a place of influence and authority in a way that was identifying, like had, had the impact to change those people's identity and the way that they believed what was true about themselves. And I don't, I actually don't think that anything makes Jesus more angry than that. I think that that is probably 
you could look at a lot of these examples and see some level of I have no tolerance for that because I'm actually an authority over you and you're using my authority and you're representing my authority in a way that is confusing them to think that I think that about them. And that makes me upset. Yeah. It's interesting when you were saying that it just popped in my head that um, Jesus does have standards of how angry he gets with certain kind of sin. And one of them that gets really under his skin is a powerful person abusing a less powerful person. And this is why he was so radical in his attitude towards children, by the way, because children were the least powerful people in his culture, and they were often abused as a result of that. And so Jesus upends the whole mindset towards children. When his disciples say, stay away, he says, no, I want them to come to me. He says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the ocean, he's saying, it's going to go really bad for you if you abuse the power and authority you have to take advantage of someone less powerful. And he's not shy about being angry about that. In, in fact, in that sense of what I was talking about before, sort of the parental leverage of anger, that's where he's exercising that. I think he's trying to say, I'm going to leverage something here to make my point that I absolutely hate people in authority taking advantage of people that are not. This is why sexual abuse of small children, if you see how this is played out over the lifetime of that victim, it affects the rest of his or her life. They will always have to deal with the trauma of being abused. And part of that trauma is being a child who has no mental, emotional, physical capability of stopping the abuse. They don't have anything at their disposal to stop it. And this is where Jesus gets really, really mad. He hates that abuse of power. So, and he wants us to know he hates it. So it puts up a bulwark against it somehow. So here's another one that's interesting. This is in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. This is an interesting one. Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. Uh, here's a little snippet of what he says. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. Now, Tyre and Sidon were no, notorious towns. People used to talk about them, you know, well, Think about uh, how, how sinful Tyre and Sidon were. They'd look down their noses at Tyre and Sidon because those are cities full of unrepentant sinners. And Jesus is saying to them, you know those people that you look down on? Actually, they'll be better off than you because they didn't have the experience of me being in their midst performing the miracles I have. You people have, and you haven't repented at all. You're not returning back to God. So here he's expressing anger over their unrepentance. So what do you take from that, Becky? What is the usefulness of anger in that situation? Well, when we think about faith, faith is unseen. It takes a great amount of faith in order to believe in God in the first place and to trust your life and your heart with him. So when Jesus comes in and he kind of like makes faith a little easier with these miracles, right? Like, wouldn't it be awesome if like there were still miracles like that happening today and thousands of people were like 
I believe. I don't have any more doubts. And so I think he's saying, look, like you got more than anybody. I came and I showed you exactly who I was and proved it, almost proved it to you. And you're still not going to fall to me. Like, I think he takes that pretty seriously. Like when we are in a position where he does miracles in our life and we don't repent, I think that makes him angry. We have like a, an upper hand in the faith category. And anger in that situation is designed to wake you up kind of. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you taking for granted what I have done in your life? It's not a small thing that you take this for granted. Because as long as you take this for granted and you are not awake to what's going on, you could lose your life if you keep in this direction. I need to wake you up to reality. So stop living in unreality. You've just seen my power expressed. Now you're accountable to that. If you ignore it, it's going to lead to your destruction. My anger is trying to point that out right now. You need to pay attention. You need to wake up. Let's do one more. I'm going to flip forward here to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. In my Jesus-centered Bible, this little section is titled The Sign of Jonah. I think this is an interesting one where it's different from the other ones that a situation that produces anger from Jesus. So one day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, hey, teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. And Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. The only sign I'm going to give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he goes on with his angry tirade against these, uh, these people who come up to him and basically say, hey, look, we need you to prove yourself. We need you to prove that you have authority here. So we need a few more miraculous signs from you. So what do you take from this? Why is Jesus expressing anger in this situation? And what usefulness does it have, Becky? This one is, again, a little bit like the last one in that it's like, how are you demanding from God? Like, don't you understand that I'm the creator of the universe? And like, what I choose to do is my business. And actually, as God, I don't actually have to explain everything <laughs> to you. This is, this is a like, and I think this is kind of the beginning of Jesus, like starting in, like he starts in pretty strong in his ministry, but then he also shifts into this perspective of like, we're going to be friends now. Like, okay, we've got all this stuff off the table. Like I had to work it out with you, but now we're going to go into this friend relationship where I'm going to love you and we're going to have a back and forth relationship. And this sin thing is done and it's over. I've paid the price. But right now he's at a place where he's, he's kind of like having to like, to say, look, like you need to understand here. Like I'm God, I created you in the first place and I need you to respect and give me authority because I'm your creator. It's not my job, nor am I interested in explaining how I'm going to do things and making you believe in me. If, if I didn't love you, then I would do that. I would turn you into robots. I would make you think and act a certain way. But in order for me to show you that I loved you, I actually have to give you a certain amount of belief that is on your own free will. I think we really forget how much the cost of free will is for God and the risk it took to give us free will. 
and and I know that he couldn't do it any other way because you can't be a loving God and do it any other way, but he took a huge risk by giving us a free will to choose. And that free will means that we can choose to reject him. We can choose to, to blaspheme him. We can choose to not follow him. We can choose all of these things. And he has to accept that it's our choice. And that's part of it's part of the process of love, but it doesn't mean that he's not upset with us when we just keep demanding, like as if we're in charge here. <laughs> we're not. Yeah. It just, it reminds me of uh, what we've talked about before on the podcast, the difference between a circumstantially based faith and a faith that's based on the heart of Jesus. So here, these people want Jesus to produce another set of circumstances for them to believe. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. The real way to develop faith in me is to come to understand, know, and embrace my heart. When you embrace my heart, you will not require miraculous signs to believe in me or to trust my authority. And this, in the end, is his end game for our relationship. He wants a relationship based on the heart, not based on the vending machine. If I do the right things, I should get the right thing back. If I live a clean life, Jesus, I expect you know, some miraculous signs to show up in my life right now. In fact, I need a miracle right now, and I've lived a pretty good life, and I expect that to happen. And if you don't come through, then maybe you don't have the authority. Maybe you don't have the power. It's kind of a form of, of childish extortion in a way. And, and his anger towards this is to point out to these people how dangerous the path that they're going down is. You're going down the path of circumstantial faith that could kill you. So it's kind of like when a parent gets terse around things like don't touch the stove, don't run across the street. They're trying to make a point that stands out that says, if you do this, you're going to really harm yourself. So he ratchets up his anger when a situation like that. I thought maybe the last one we could just quickly take a look at here is in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20. And I'm not going to actually go down all the way through verse 20. I'll just start reading in verse 14. At the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. So I brought him to the, your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Now listen to this. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And then Jesus quickly excises the demon from this little boy. And I thought this one really stuck out to me. Here this guy brought his boy to the disciples. They couldn't get the demon out of him. And so he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus just has this outburst of faithless and corrupt people. So what do you think's fueling his reaction here, Becky? I mean, <laughs> I think sometimes Jesus just got frustrated with the disciples. They were around him more than anyone. I'm glad we're ending with this one because actually there's a lot of anger displaced towards the disciples. And I think when Jesus lets you in closer than anyone else and you get to experience, taste, and see everything about his life in that way, and then you still act as if you don't know what's going on. He gets super frustrated. And he was constantly getting frustrated with the disciples. Like, dude, you know, some of these people come from all over. They spend, an, you know, a couple hours listening to me talk, but you have been traveling with me. You have seen all this stuff. Like, shouldn't you know better by now? <laughs> yeah. And he just got frustrated. 
Yeah, and it's an issue, I think, here also of, don't you understand my authority? It's interesting, it comes right after the other one we were doing where the Pharisees question his authority. And to your point, Becky, he's trying to say, look, hasn't it gotten through your head yet? Who's in charge here? Because if you understood who's in charge, this demon is nothing. This demon has no authority. Why are you still struggling with this? What have I not shown you? <laughs> so I, I think that's true. And the anger here is, is oriented towards, again, wake up. Pay attention to what you've already been exposed to. You're accountable to it. And uh, understand what's going on here. You, you have said with your lips that you see me as the Messiah. All right, start acting like it. <laughs> so just to wrap up here, if we think about what Jesus-centered anger might look like, I just scribbled some stuff down here, and I thought it'd be interesting if we reacted to a few things. These are just some things off the top of my head. Becky, you might have something to add in here, but I think Jesus-centered anger looks like responding, not reacting. And the difference between those two is who's in control. Is your anger in control of you, or are you in control of your anger? I know for me, this is a big deal. I feel like I have to repent when I express anger as a reaction rather than a response, because then it means that I'm not really in control of that. What do you think about that, Becky? I think is that it needs to be strategic. It has to have a strategic reason um, for its use. And when it's strategic, it means you're fully in control of what's going on. And when you're out of control, then it's reactive. It's and it a can reactive be destructive. response. It's destructive. When it's strategic, it's I've sat and I've thought about this, or you know, you're kind of in the spirit and you know, like this is. I mean, sometimes you have to get angry with your kids in the moment because you're protecting their life, right? Like this can't wait. I can't sit and pray on it. Like they need to see how serious this is right now because they just got into something that I need them to understand that they can never get into again. And that has to be totally clear right now. And that's the reason that we're doing this. That kind of leads into the next one I wrote down, which is that Jesus-centered anger is appropriate to the circumstance, meaning that the level of anger is appropriate for what's going on. And that goes both ways, by the way. If something is legitimately a source of healthy anger and you suppress your anger, then you're not allowing your anger to be appropriate to the circumstance. The other side of that obviously is true as well. We've already talked about that when it's too much, when the response is more than the situation requires. And I think what ties these two things together is inauthenticity in either one of these situations is really the greater sin that Jesus is going after. Inauthenticity means that you're either suppressing it or you're magnifying it, and both are not authentic responses to what's happening in the moment. So the other one uh, that follows that is bringing the right force at the right time in the right place. We've talked about how anger leverages. When you think about anger and the right force, the right time, the right place, Becky, what pops into your head with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the right force at the right time at the right place means that you've, you understand how you're going to use this anger and what the outcome of that. You understand your goal and outcome, and it shouldn't be done in name calling. Like, there shouldn't be, when you walk away, that person's identity should be intact. They should feel loved and supported and they should have no question about who they are. They shouldn't feel any shame or guilt. I think that when anger is used correctly, it doesn't alter someone's identity. It 
keeps the identity intact, but it deals with the behavior and it's only responding to that. Yeah, and uh, the, the next one is kind of related to that. I wrote, Jesus-centered anger is never a default response that closes down loving your enemy because Jesus has told us that the true test of real love is whether we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And in the moment when you're angry with somebody, they are acting like your enemy. They are the enemy to you in the moment. There's some abuse of power when I use anger that's designed to shut someone down. And ultimately, if you track that back, it means that we're not loving our enemy when we decide to shut them down in the moment. So anger that does that is wrong, uh, needs to be repented of. The last one here that I wrote was um, that Jesus-centered anger is not sideways venting your disappointment or grief or trauma or depression. And I have to say, in my role as editor of a magazine for 30 years, I've had a lot of angry people write notes and call me and stuff like that over the years. And almost always, I can almost guarantee the level of their anger is almost always tied to sideways venting. Because when I actually pursue them and push back on what it is they're angry about, almost always they'll say, well, the truth is I had this other thing going on in my life and I was really frustrated with that. Maybe that was fueling some of my response about this. I decided early on that when people told me that, that I would have the discipline of saying, you know, uh, sideways venting on someone you think is safe to do it on and you, and you don't care whether you hurt me or not is not okay. The sideways venting you just expressed is not okay. And there's usually a pregnant pause and and then they apologize. And this is something we see on social media every day. Hmm. Um, I saw this on social media today where somebody is not being cognizant of what is going on in their own life and they're using their influence and channel as a place to vent out their frustrations towards people in a really unhealthy way where what they need to do is take some time probably away from social media and just get some space and heal. And I think we're seeing this, you know, I'm anticipating the upcoming election and really hoping that we don't have the same level of severity as we did last year. But unless we as a culture get a handle on this particular thing, I think social media is a dangerous place. If you are in a place of dealing with disappointment, grief, trauma, or depression, you should probably just shut it down and start just focusing on dealing with it. And what that means also by implication is that if you're trying to self-therapy yourself by expressing anger in a sideways way to try to deal with your grief and disappointment, it never works. It only makes the situation worse and it doesn't heal. So there's a necessity to learn how to grieve in our culture, to express sorrow, to mourn over the things that disappointed us instead of lash out. Because lashing out simply destroys when it comes out sideways like this. So there you have it, gang. By the way, if you haven't already joined the Pigs page, it's our little community of podcast people that want to be in community with each other. They want to go back and forth with each other and help each other and encourage each other, sometimes challenge each other. So you can go to our uh, podcast page, which is at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. For this one, you're just looking for season four, episode 20. And you'll find a link there to ask to be invited into the pigs page. So if you'd like to do that, we promise not to sideways vent on you in the, on the pigs page. There's actually never been sideways venting on the pigs page. I'm amazed by it, actually. 
Woohoo! It's a safe. That's another way of saying it's a safe space to be yourself, and to find encouragement and fuel for the journey. So don't forget. By the way, I mentioned before that Jesus Center Bible is a great graduation gift, or a great going off to college gift, or a great going off into my career gift. Um, it, it's a fantastic companion to give to somebody who is going to need a companion as they head off into this new adventure. So we'll uh, have a new episode next week, and in two weeks, the Becky Nader will be back on. So can't wait for that. She's waving goodbye to all of us right now. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again next time. Bye.